This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at patreon.com and by Haymarket Books. 2021 marks 20 years of radical independent publishing at Haymarket Books. To celebrate two decades of publishing books for changing the world, all Haymarket titles are currently 40% off at haymarketbooks.org. Founded in 2001 with a mission to publish books that contribute to struggles for social and economic justice, Haymarket has now published over 1,000 titles. Ranging from best-selling books about current events to urgent interventions about activist strategy to indispensable histories of past struggles to republications of -of out-of-print classics, Haymarket strives to publish books and contribute to the development of a critical, engaged, international left. Browse Haymarket's extensive catalog, all 40% off through August 15th, at haymarketbooks.org. That's haymarketbooks.org. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. Outside observers and critics confronted white evangelical support for Donald Trump as a puzzle to be solved. But where many saw hypocrisy, my guest today, historian Kristen Cobus Dumay, identified a number of continuities. Trump, she shows, was exactly the man many evangelicals had been waiting for domineering, sexist, and celebrating violence against myriad others, Trump was the very sort of patriarch who had for decades been idealized in mass-market evangelical culture. From John Wayne to Donald Trump, quote, The affinity was based not on theology, but rather on a shared masculine ideal. It became a creed that preached a, quote, mutually reinforcing vision of Christian masculinity of patriarchy and submission, sex and power. Power to be exercised in the home, church, nation, and across a world dominated by U.S. empire. By 2016, evangelical group identity had long since become defined more by a shared consumer market and militarist nationalism than denominational niceties or eschatological particulars. Dumay is herself a Calvinist who grew up in the Christian Reformed Church. Her book has become a bestseller and a sensational topic of debate within evangelical America. And it's not hard to see why. She knows her subject intimately and pulls no punches. She writes, quote, Evangelical support for Trump was no aberration, nor was it merely a pragmatic choice. It was, rather, the culmination of evangelicals' embrace of militant masculinity, an ideology that enshrines patriarchal authority and condones the callous display of power, at home and abroad. By the time Trump arrived, proclaiming himself their savior, conservative white evangelicals had already traded a faith that privileges humility and elevates the least of these for one that derides gentleness as the province of wusses. Rather than turning the other cheek, they'd resolved to defend their faith and their nation, secure in the knowledge that the ends justified the means. Having replaced the Jesus of the Gospels with the vengeful warrior Christ, 
It's no wonder many came to think of Trump in the same way. In 2016, many observers were stunned at evangelicals' apparent betrayal of their own values. In reality, evangelicals did not cast their vote despite their beliefs, but because of them. Before we get started, please do take a quick moment to support this podcast at patreon.com slash the dig. Aside from some advertising, we really overwhelmingly depend on you, our listeners, to put this podcast out and to make every episode freely available to all. We are also about to spend a bunch of the money that listeners contribute towards putting out a weekly newsletter about the show, putting the most recent episode in context, identifying relevant debates, and suggesting future readings. That newsletter, which I promise will be very good, will be available on our website, but it will only be emailed to Patreon supporters. So if you would like to get that newsletter in your inbox, please sign up to support us. We also have a new Discord message board for patrons, though we'll also let you join if you can't afford to contribute. Just send us an email. Anyhow, if you have been meaning to support The Dig, and if you want to get our weekly newsletter starting this September emailed to you, please take a moment to support us at patreon.com slash the dig. Even a few bucks a month is a big help. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash the dig. Thank you. And here's Kristen Cobus Dumay, a professor of history and gender studies at Calvin University and the author of Jesus and John Wayne, How White Evangelicals Corrupted a Faith and Fractured a Nation. Her work has been featured in The New York Times, The Washington Post, NBC News, and on NPR, the BBC, and other national and international outlets. Kristen Cobus Dumay, welcome to the dig. Oh, thank you for having me. There are a lot of debates over Trump voters' demographics, their motivations, but there's no simpler way, maybe, to describe the red hot core of Trump's base than white evangelicals. What do we learn about Trumpism when we recognize that it's in significant part an evangelical phenomenon? I think one of the most important things is that uh, we can understand that you know, people support Trump, uh, many people support Trump, not as a second choice, not as a fallback, not because they're holding their noses, not because they were they were pushed into it uh, for you know whatever reason, Hillary Clinton back in 2016 or, or whatever new reason, but that there were genuine affinities uh, between many Trump voters and Trump himself and Trump's policies. And we can really see that with white evangelicals, despite many of their claims to the contrary, particularly among the the smaller group of never-Trump evangelicals who claim that, no, this is not who we are. This is not what we want. When you really dig down and, and, and uh, listen to what people are saying, you can see that there are some deep underlying affinities between conservative white evangelicals in particular and what Trump stands for. There was a lot of effort to understand what was perceived to be evangelical hypocrisy. How could family values voters support such an icon of brazen sexual immorality. And one common answer was that it was about instrumentality, that they reconciled 
to the candidate who could pick Supreme Court justices. But you write that Trump did not contradict evangelical values, but was rather their fullest embodiment. Why? We, we really need to understand what family values evangelicalism is all about, right? On the surface, absolutely, it seems like hypocrisy. And you can look at survey data that white evangelicals just a few years back were deeply concerned about the personal morality of a candidate. And as soon as Trump appeared on the stage, suddenly not so much anymore. So there's a there's an element of hypocrisy here. But family values, what are we talking about? And historically speaking, when you go back in time, you can see that what is meant by family values uh, always has to do with uh, patriarchal power and the assertion particularly of white patriarchal power. You go back to the 1960s, 1970s, you see the emergence of the religious right, you see the the issues that they mobilized around from you know, the authority of white parents and you know, white fathers in particular to make choices about their children in light of uh, desegregation efforts, the assertion of masculinity, kind of rugged masculinity over against feminism, and and really the uh, kind of defense of, of traditional manhood in Vietnam era. All of these things were central to white evangelicals' um, political mobilization as part of the religious right. And the link that really um, holds these things together is, again, the assertion of white patriarchal authority. And if you keep that at the heart of family values politics, then a, a whole lot of things may Make a whole lot more sense. And you can see that we really aren't fundamentally talking about hypocrisy or a betrayal of evangelical values. You write that that evangelicals, more than any other religious group, support preemptive war, torture, the death penalty. They're the most likely to own guns and support gun rights to be anti-immigrant and anti-refugee. So a key part of your argument is that the culture wars were never just about what we thought that they were about, about sexuality and reproduction this kind of narrow sense. What what are the culture wars, really? And what do we miss when we see them as just simply about a tradition or biblically informed objection to gay rights and abortion in particular? Yeah, the culture wars are, are much more about an identity. And I, I think this is something that a lot of times evangelicals themselves really want to separate out uh, kind of theology, their understanding of a more ideal form of religion, of their own faith from, you know, political uh, commitments from some of these cultural issues. And so really focus on you know, their definition of, of evangelicalism as a theological definition. And, and it's, it's, it's uh, very idealized. Uh, and then any of these other things you can, you can kind of brush aside and say, well, that's really not what it is to be an evangelical. If you look at lived experience, if you listen to the stories of evangelicals, if you move in and out of evangelical spaces, it becomes very clear that there is so much more to being an evangelical than holding particular doctrinal views or even holding particular views on on uh, sexuality or uh, reproduction, although these are very important. That's a kind of bridge between the religious faith and these cultural uh, ideals and political values. And so to understand evangelicals, I think it's really important that we not separate out the theology or the uh, uh, more traditionally uh, traditional religious beliefs from the 
values that evangelicals have come to embrace as an expression of that faith. And uh, again, if you think of evangelicals, if you observe them, I think of them as ordinary people living out their lives and see what, what motivates them, what shapes them. The religious and the cultural and the political are always deeply, deeply intertwined through popular culture, through the media they consume, through the words they hear from the pulpit, the friends, their communities. These things are closely integrated. So we think of evangelicalism as a religious, cultural, and political identity, and it is, it, it's all mixed together. It's, it's impossible to separate out. Yeah. In terms of theology, evangelicalism has its so-called four distinctives, and then there are a ton of different theological differences, some of which would, on the surface level, seem quite important that divide various denominations from one another. But, a, but you argue that in fact, they really don't matter that much, at least not anymore, and that most white evangelicals are often quite theologically illiterate. Yes, yes. So because we have time, we can talk about the yeah, uh, evangelical distinctives. <laughs> Please. And the uh, the way that evangelicalism has traditionally been defined by scholars of evangelicalism and by uh, evangelicals themselves, at least elite evangelicals, uh, is through these four distinctives, which have come to be uh, known as the Bebbington Quadrilateral. <laughs> it just means four-point definition here. And it was coined by David Bebbington, a historian of British evangelicalism, a couple of decades ago. The Bebbington Quadrilateral defines evangelicals by by their biblicism, or upholding the authority of the Christian scriptures, crucicentrism, the centrality of Christ's atonement, the cross, uh, conversionism, this born-again experience, and then also uh, activism or evangelism. So you're acting out of these, these faith commitments. And those are the evangelical distinctives. If you go to the website of the National Association of Evangelicals, you will find those four points. I originally intended to do what every scholar of evangelicalism does, and that is you drop that definition in the intro to your book, and then you get on with what you're going to do. But as I was researching, I came to realize that that definition didn't get me very far at all to describe the, the movement I was trying to describe. And there are a couple of points. Um, one in particular is the issue of race. Because if you take that theological definition, those theological distinctives, then you can actually categorize the majority of Black Protestants in America as evangelicals. But they would not call themselves that. <laughs> That's the thing. Now, <laughs> white evangelical leaders will often want to do this and, and say, see how, how diverse we are? And they will criticize people who, who narrow evangelicalism down to white evangelicals. Uh, the problem is exactly the vast majority <laughs> of Black Protestants who can check all of those boxes do not identify as evangelical. The survey data we have here is from four or five years ago. I'm guessing that's going to be even fewer Black Christians today are going to want to identify as evangelical. And that's simply because to Black Protestants, it is very clear that there is so much more to being an evangelical than these theological distinctives. And then scratch beneath the surface just a little bit, you can see that even if you look at those theological distinctives, biblicism, crucicentrism, 
it could very well be that Black Protestants often mean very different things by those uh, concepts. So, Biblicism. Well, which Bible verses are really critical to you? Which ones are you guiding your 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 faith and life after? And which ones are you writing off? You know, is it love your neighbor as yourself and love your enemy and turn the other cheek, or is it you know the 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 warrior God in in Revelation? And so, so we need to take a much more critical look at these concepts. And, and uh, so I ended up deciding that that definition really wasn't describing the, the cultural and religious movement that I was seeing in my sources. Yeah. And there's all kinds of examples as well in terms of theological distinctions among evangelicals that once upon a time were important enough for them to become different churches. Absolutely. Premillennialism, postmillennialism, right? What happens with the return of Christ? When does it happen? The existence of spiritual gifts, um, speaking in tongues. All there, there are many issues that in past generations, uh, infant baptism or adult baptism, believer baptism, right? Uh, these are issues that uh, traditionally had been really important in distinguishing one group of American Protestants from another and one denomination from another. And uh, what I I saw in my research is in the last 50, 75 years or so, those theological distinctions really um, kind of, uh, uh, not for all, but for many evangelicals, ended up receding into the background. And what emerged and said were these cultural and political flashpoints. And this is where we do have the emergence of issues of gender and sexuality, uh, in particular, the uh, embrace of patriarchal authority, belief in female submission, and the like. And that's where you see um, that come to define uh, who is in and who is out of the fold so that you might have uh, you know, progressive evangelicals who can, again, check all of those theological boxes, uh, who share the same faith tradition in many ways, but who come out when they read the scriptures with a different opinion on LGBTQ issues, for example. They are ostracized. They are uh, defined outside of the evangelical fold and with all that that entails. And so you really do see this kind of realignment and redefinition of boundaries that emerges uh, in the last half century or so. You write that, quote, militant white masculinity serves as the thread building all of these issues into a coherent whole. A father's rule in the home is inextricably linked to heroic leadership on the national stage, and the fate of the nation hinges on both. How does that work? How is it gender that serves as the key hinge point here to connect what we think of as evangelical family values to evangelicals' broader right-wing Christian nationalist worldview? So when we think of evangelical politics, often people go immediately to again, the family values politics, to the domestic issues, to issues of sex and gender. And there's good reason for that. Evangelicals talk about that an awful lot. What it often is kind of forgotten is just how um, uh, distinctive evangelical views on foreign policy are as well. 
what I wanted to explore was what is the connection here? And this is this is a connection that became clear to me um, very early on in my research. Uh, the, the first time I became curious about the topic of evangelical masculinity was actually more than 15 years ago when some of my students introduced me to a book that they said I had to read. Now, I had just been lecturing in a U.S. history class on Teddy Roosevelt, and I did that because I wanted to show my uh, conservative Christian students how gender worked in history and how gender was not just about uh, what you do in the privacy of your own home or even within family relations. And it was not just about uh, what the Bible says men or women should be or do. It was linked to broader economic shifts. It was li- uh, linked to race and to empire and to foreign policy and Teddy Roosevelt is just the prime example for this. So I gave this great little lecture on Teddy Roosevelt and early 20th century U.S. history. And that's when two guys from the class came up to me and said, Professor DeMay, you have to read this book. And that book was John Eldridge's Wild at Heart. And I took their advice. I went down to Family Christian Bookstore here in Grand Rapids, picked up a copy. And sure enough, I opened the, the book right to the first page, a quote from Teddy Roosevelt. And the book went on to sketch a very militant and militaristic conception of Christian manhood. God is a warrior God, and men are made in his image. Every man has a battle to fight. And I was startled by this. Uh, I'm I'm a Christian myself, and that's not really my conception of uh, Christian manhood or Christianity, the militant sense. But this was also back in 2005, 2006 the early years of the Iraq War. And while I was looking at this literature on this warrior masculinity, which, by the uh, by the way, was, was incredibly popular at the time. I had heard about the book before and just thought, yeah, not my thing. Uh, it went on to sell more than 4 million copies. Every evangelical man, boy, and many women were reading that book. And so at that time, I was also seeing all this survey data that white evangelicals were much more likely than other Americans to support the Iraq war, to support preemptive war in general, as you said, to condone the use of torture, to embrace aggressive foreign policy. And it was just a basic question for me as a historian of gender. What might one of these things have to do with the other? Uh, which is exactly what historians of uh, who looked at Teddy Roosevelt had asked as well. And it, it comes down to how gender works in history. It's about power. It's about how power is organized. Uh, I thought that in evangelical circles, again, gender had always been seen as this kind of personal issue as this is what God wants me to do as a Christian woman. This is what God wants uh, me to do as a Christian man. This is biblical. This is what the Bible says. But when you step back, uh, at least it was clear to me that a lot of what was being packaged and sold as biblical was not coming from the Bible, certainly not in undiluted form. There was all kinds of you know, uh, cultural and political values that were entangled in this, but again, being packaged and sold as biblical. This conception of warrior masculinity 
once you're looking for it, you can start to see it almost everywhere in conservative evangelical spaces. And it is used to defend uh, masculine leadership in the home, which is seen as the building block, fundamental uh, organizing principle of society, and it is God-ordained. So patriarchal authority, a husband's authority over his wife and children, and that is directly linked to uh, God's will for society. And so you need strong leaders in the home, strong leaders in the church, also men, same men, and strong leaders in the nation as well. And this involves both in terms of you know political leaders, but very much in terms of the military as well. You need strong men to defend faith family, and nation. And what happens in one of those spaces affects the other spaces because these are the same men we're talking about. And so you need to have, you need to ensure that these men are not emasculated, that their authority is not challenged, whether it's in the home, in the church, or in the nation. Let's turn to the history, starting with the conventional history, which is that fundamentalists retreated from politics and from public life after the Scopes monkey trial over evolution in 1925, that they then bided their time and then just exploded on the scene suddenly with Jerry Falwell's moral majority in the 70s. But you write that, quote, it was in the 1940s and 1950s that a potent mix of patriarchal gender traditionalism, militarism, and Christian nationalism coalesced to form the basis of a revitalized evangelical identity. First, where does that conventional story come from? And then what's revealed that's otherwise obscured when we put the early evangelical movement where you argue that it really belongs at the center of Cold War American life? Yeah, so first the original narrative that evangelicals really disappeared. They were licking their wounds after, you know, humiliating defeats in terms of the fundamentalist modernist controversies, not only the humiliation of the Scopes trial, but also in the 1920s failure to regain or take control of major Protestant denominations, right? And so um, so they they lick their wounds and they wounds and they essentially disappear until they reemerge in the 1970s. Um, that's what it looks looked like to to uh, liberals, to secularists, to coastal elites. Uh, that Clarence Darrow you... scared them away. <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> uh, but historians of evangelicalism have long argued that that is not the case. They follow, well, where did these people go? They just started their own institutions, their own denominations, their own Bible colleges, their own uh, newsletters and, and, and publishing houses. And, and they were um, um, doing quite well. And this is in the 1930s, uh, right? 19, late 1920s, 1930s, you see a lot of these smaller uh, institutions being established. And then in the early 1940s, they get together and they say, you know what? We're doing a lot of really good work across the country, but imagine what we could do if we came together. And this was in 1942 when they come together to form the National Association of Evangelicals. Again, it's it's their explicit plan to come together, strengthen numbers, and to assert their influence over American culture and society. They say, you know, we, we need magazines. 
with subscribers in the tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands, we need to take to the radio. They are already um, entrepreneurial um, in terms of of radio, but but we need to do more. And we need um, we need to embrace Christian publishing. We need bookstores in in every town and city across this country. Um, again, they they have these plans. And what's really remarkable is like within fifteen years, they have accomplished this all and then some. Um, so so that's part of their plan here um, in the nineteen forties. In the 1940s, when they are coming together to reassert their power, their influence, and they wanted to, they wanted to do this because they believed that they were the most faithful Christians. They were the faithful remnant. They were the ones that held God's truth, and so it was their duty to make sure that they um, exerted their influence widely over American um, society. Now, this was also during World War II. And um, at that time, this was this was the good war, and um, you know, kind of protecting um, democracy was front and center. And um, you see this patriotism also infusing this this sense of evangelical um, purpose. That again, they were they held God's truth, and they were true Americans, and this all held together um, quite well in during the Second World War. But where this really starts to um, define their identity is just after the Second World War with the arrival of the Cold War, right? By 1947, uh, that's when we see this a sense of special purpose really define ev- conservative evangelicalism. They felt that they were the most Christian, uh, the, the most faithful Christians in America, and they were convinced that America had this special role to play, that Christian America had this role to play. But suddenly there was this great threat, and that threat was communism. And communism was anti-God, anti-family, and anti-American, all of the things that they held most dear. And so they understood that their role was to defend American Christianity against the liberals, against the secularists, and to defend Christian America. And that required a military defense because the threat was a military threat. And so all of this is happening, yes, long before— the uh, emergence of Jerry Falwell Sr. with the rise of the religious right. Now, the thing is, these values that conservative evangelicals held dear in the late 40s um, were not all that different from the values held by many Americans, particularly white middle-class Americans. So that's really what's different here, right? And that's why they don't, in retrospect, stand out so much and people could think, in retrospect, that they weren't there at all. Exactly. And, uh, right, this was, this was a post-war baby boom. So traditional family values were <laughs> all the rage, uh, you know, supported by government spending on the GI Bill. And again, for white middle-class Americans in particular, this is the Cold War consensus. And again, they just, they, they weren't that distinctive. But what that meant was that they very much felt at the center of things. And Billy Graham helped this out too. Billy Graham emerges in, over the course of the 1940s as this uh, evangelical celebrity, as the the kind of figurehead. And he was Christian nationalist through and through, extremely patriotic. He was also patriarchal. All of these values he embodied, and he was their celebrity. And he was also in and out of the halls of power by the 1950s, right? So their plans to assert their influence, their plans to be at the center of things, they were accomplishing that in the 1950s. Everything was going great until the 1960s, right? And that's when things fall apart 
that's when so many other Americans start to challenge these values, question these values, and that's when evangelicals double down and these values become oppositional values rather than just values that they hold in common with many other Americans. You can't overstate the importance, the singular importance really of Billy Graham. You write, quote, more than anything else, Billy Graham's celebrity knit together the disconnected universe of American evangel- evangelicalism. What? Why? Yeah. Again, uh, evangelicals were coming from um, different spaces. They were, you know, uh, geographically uh, separated. Um, there were still plenty of doctrinal differences that separated these folks. You had fundamentalists, like the, the more conservative reactionary group. And then you had those who wanted to separate themselves out from the most conservative reactionary um, and kind of militant group. And so they rebranded themselves as neo-evangelicals, new evangelicals, mostly to set themselves apart from the really cantankerous and militant uh, and kind of embarrassing um, fundamentalists. Fire and brimstone street corner preacher types. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. I mean, because, because ultimately that wasn't such great evangelism. Really, when you think about it, look at America in the 1950s and what kind of face do you really want to put forward, right? You want to entice, you want to woo, you want to win them over to Christ. And Billy Graham was the guy who could do that. He was dashingly handsome, uh, the specimen of masculinity, which was something that reporters just uh, loved to comment on. I thought it was really important to include in the book, uh, by the way, this, this picture of Billy Graham in his prime as this dashing evangelist. It's an amazing photo. I love it. It's actually from a, a, it was taken um, by a studio here in Grand Rapids. And um, so it's a a local, local picture. But, um, you know, many people in their mind now have this image of Billy Graham as um, very, you know, avuncular, this older man, noble. um, I did. And and not very political, right? He kind of rises above the fray. At least that's the perception of anybody, I don't know, under 50, maybe. <laughs> if you go back in time, that is absolutely not the case. Uh, he was deeply political, politically ambitious, and inserted himself in uh, partisan politics numerous times and lived to regret it, right? His close relationship with Richard Nixon. And after Watergate, he uh, he was chastened, he stepped back, and he warned other evangelicals about this uh, entanglement with partisan politics. Um, and very few uh, <laughs> uh, listened to that. But yeah, Billy Graham of the 1940s and 50s, not the Billy Graham of the 1990s and 2000s. It's easy to see why communism was a useful thing to demonize, how the Cold War was this framework that allowed evangelicals to map the the holy war between the forces of Christ and the devil onto America's terrestrial geopolitical conflict with communism. But but how did it also play this key role in taking evangelicalism in a more thoroughly patriarchal direction as well? Here, Vietnam is really important, I think. And I was really struck in this research just how critical the Vietnam era was in terms of this emerging neo-evangelical identity. Uh, because, yes, you're right, communism was this, this dire threat in the language of, you know, the devil versus, you know, God is on our side and communism is of the devil. Uh, you run across that a lot. 
again, communism was at that point a, a, a real threat. It was a real military threat. And the, the U.S. government was was really trying to emphasize that and to mobilize opposition when a lot of Americans, especially coming out of World War II, didn't really care all that much. Um, and so this was a conscious effort on the part of the government and evangelicals helped in that effort to really ratchet up the sense of urgency, of crisis, of the need to fight against the devil, to fight against uh, this communist threat. What we see happening then is as that fight moves to the battlefields of Vietnam in particular, and as things aren't going as planned, it's it's really uh, deeply troubling. Many Americans, but many conservative Americans in particular, uh, many Americans look at what's going on in Vietnam and, and, and start to question some of the values that they had held dear, some of the truths that they had been told, ideas about American greatness, about American goodness. And then what's happening in the battlefields of Vietnam is our boys are not able to uh, defeat this ragtag enemy of North Vietnamese. Uh, what is going on here? It, it, it's really a sense of crisis. What is wrong with American manhood that we cannot defeat this enemy? Now, the other thing that's going on at the same time, of course, is dramatic social change in terms of feminism, 1960s and 1970s, questioning traditional patriarchy, questioning, um, you know, quote unquote, traditional gender roles. This traditional, as a historian, you always have to use scare quotes, really, because, you know, traditional gender roles, we're really talking about this kind of breadwinner economy that only characterized certain white middle-class Americans, particularly in the 1950s and early 1960s. A subset of people for a rather short amount of time. Yes. And so that's what stands in for, again, quote unquote, traditional values uh, or, or traditional, um, yes, traditional gender roles, traditional values, and, and so on. And, and so you have feminism questioning those distinctive gender roles as they materialized in that particular historical and cultural moment. And you have what's going on in Vietnam. And both of those things are raising some fundamental questions about gender, about what does it mean to be a man, um, about what kind of men do we need, what does it mean to be a woman. You have the anti-war movement, right, student um, protesters. You have hippies who are, you know, not only challenging the U.S., uh, you know, military action, but the men are growing their hair out and they're wearing flowered shirts. And, like, all these things really um, seem to strike at the heart of the god given God-ordained social order. Disobeying their parents and as Ronald Reagan very much took notice of as governor of California, disobeying university authorities. Disobeying authority. And that's where you have in the 1970s in particular, this uh, influence on authority, authority in, um, in, in conservative evangelical um, communities. And this first came became clear to me when I looked at the writings of James Dobson. Uh, now, for some of your listeners, I'm not sure how familiar James Dobson is. Uh, he's, he's, he's played a— He's pretty famous. I'd say he's yeah, pre he, pretty famous. <laughs> okay, okay. Uh, it, sometimes it's hard moving in and out of these yeah, circles. Yeah, yeah, like totally. James Dobson, household name for generations, right? And I, I would argue that if you're going to understand the history of— white evangelicalism in the last half century, he's your guy. He's 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 at the center of things. But he, of course, comes to prominence in the early 1970s as a child psychologist. And he is writing about how to discipline your children. He's like the anti-Dr. Anti Spock 
Benjamin Spock, who wrote that best-selling book. He was the nurturer. <laughs> and Thompson said, Spock, you know, this is exactly what's wrong with American society. By coddling your children, you're setting them up to become hippies. And uh, I mean, in fact, uh, you know, Dr. Spock himself did become an anti-war activist. So there might be something there. So, you know, Dobson was going to offer a better way forward. You need to discipline your children. You need to spank your children. You need to assert your dominance, assert your authority so that they learn to submit to parental authority because the fate of the nation depends on submitting to proper God-ordained authorities. That's what makes him so famous. So, so that's, you know, Dobson's version. And I kind of knew that, right? I've heard of Dare to Discipline. But um, until I really went back <laughs> to title. the story. <laughs> I mean, I grew up being spanked. I don't know how common or uncommon that is. And, I have liberal parents with Spock literally on the bookshelf. So, <laughs> Oh, what I wouldn't have given. <laughs> so, you know, so that's a thing. Uh, but what I, what I also do in the book is, you know, James Dobson is, uh, is, mainstream white evangelicalism, family values, evangelicalism. He is your guy. There's another person I write about in tandem with James Dobson, and that is Bill Gothard. Now, Bill Gothard is um, this kind of shadowy figure. When I initially set out to write this book, I had no interest in writing about Bill Gothard because he seemed so fringe. Uh, He's this ultra-authoritarian advice giver also on how to raise children, how to discipline children. He had uh, these—he was uh, unlike Dobson, who was on the radio and very outward-facing. Gother did his thing through these not quite secretive but not super open uh, seminars. And so you attend these seminars, and tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of conservative evangelicals over the years attended these Gothard seminars. And uh, I heard from so many people I was talking to just casually or else interviewing people that I thought were totally mainstream evangelicals, who are totally mainstream evangelicals, would pull me aside and say, you are going to you are going to include Bill Gothard, aren't you? And then they started talking and I realized just how deep his influence ran and how broad it was, just beneath the surface, right? Not visible in any way. So you you've heard of James Dobson. Most of your listeners probably hadn't heard of Bill Gothard. And he was drawing on the teachings of a Christian reconstructionist theologian named Rusus, is that right? <laughs> Rusus Rushduni. Yes, he usually Rush just goes Dooney. by Rushduni. What is Christian Reconstructionism, and how does its vision compare to the, I guess, relatively more vanilla model put forward by by someone like Dobson? How did that model, which is really reactionary, I mean, Rush Dooney was an apologist for chattel slavery, like truly right way, far right reactionary stuff. How did it spread so far and wide throughout American evangelical Christianity? But like by yeah, so chattel slavery, you know, white supremacy, misogyny, uh, you know, this 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 harsh chauvinism, and women shouldn't even vote, women should not go to college, uh, these sorts of things. Women should not work out of, of the home. Husband has absolute authority over every single aspect of his wife's life, you know, the grocery money, all of these kinds of things. So yes, very far right, very extreme, very fringe. But this is part of the problem is it's it's very tempting to write off some of these fringe figures like Rush Dooney, like Gothard, as those are the extremists, right? That's not who we're talking about, white evangelicals. But when you when you start to look 
at the uh, the networks, when you start to look at the um, teachings of ordinary people, the beliefs of ordinary people, you realize that there are. It, it's really difficult to to distinguish the fringe from the mainstream, and that actually became a, a theme of the, the my research throughout. You know, the Dobson and Gothard, just one example of. Uh, what is the relationship between the mainstream articulation of some of these ideas and the fringe? And when you when when you look at somebody like Dobson, who is emphasizing patriarchal authority, emphasizing this hierarchical authority structure, the need to submit to the God ordained authorities, and the fate of the nation hangs on our ability to to um, to achieve this proper submission to authority. And then you look at somebody like Gothard. There is not a lot of distance between the two. One is yes, harsher. One is taken to the extreme, but there are there's a lot of overlap. And so when you look at the evangelical movement as well, it can become kind of difficult. I know a lot of scholars before really wanted to just not not touch somebody like Rush Dooney, because very quickly you can get accused of uh, making a mountain out of a molehill, right? Who's ever heard of Rush Dooney, even in evangelical spaces? It very much like Gothard, kind of under the surface. Uh, if you look at just popular writings on uh, family life, on, again, how to raise children, if you look at textbooks uh, in the homeschool network, in uh, Christian school networks, on you know, what are they saying about chattel slavery? What are they saying about Christian America? What are they saying about gender roles? Um, that's where you can see the fingerprints of this Christian Reconstructionism, um, this very hierarchical and patriarchal structure to all of society. And, um, and, and that's where you can see some people will only ever kind of dabble in the mainstream version. Some people will be hardcore, homeschool, far right. Many people are going to be somewhere in between. And they're going to be promiscuous consumers, right? And if you shop in a Christian bookstore, or now you go online, um, or you go to your church library, chances are you're going to have sources available to you across the spectrum. And if you venture into the more extreme articulations, they're not going to be super shocking to you, perhaps because you've already been introduced to the slightly less extreme uh, versions of these same teachings. Because they share the same basic principles. Exactly. Submission to to patriarchal authority and also, in many cases, you know, white supremacy. In 1977, Dobson founded Focus on the Family, and his daily radio show was soon picked up by hundreds of stations around the country. And again, as you said earlier, you know, Dobson is really, if you had to pick a key figure after Billy Graham, it's him. You write, quote, find doctrinal differences that may have separated Nazarene from Southern Baptist evangelical from fundamentalist made little difference when it came to Dobson's growing empire. This is something we touched on at the top of the interview, but how did institutions like Focus on the Family, what role did they play in evading or aligning these theological divides that had once been so important? And what impact in the 70s, 80s, as these institutions begin to grow in power, what impact did that sort of atheological or theologically promiscuous, whatever political unification have on American evangelicals over the long run? 
Well, we really have to think about evangelicalism as a market here to understand how this works. I've talked about the importance of consumer culture in cultivating evangelical identity. And even before Dobson founds a Focus on the Family Radio in 1977, we can see these practices falling into place uh, with in the realm of Christian publishing. And so I, I talk in the book about the uh, formation of the Christian Booksellers Association in um, the early 50s and as a really formative uh, organization. And here I'm drawing on the scholarship of Daniel Silliman, uh, uh, who is actually just about ready to release a book on Christian publishing called Reading Evangelicals. Uh, his excellent research, he demonstrated how, and again, this was this was back in, in response to the uh, National Association of Evangelicals, an evangelical attempt to reach into all the corners of the country and, and, and come together and then assert their influence. Christian publishing was key here. And one of the things that they do was establish the Christian Booksellers Association, which then made it possible for all sorts of individuals to establish Christian bookstores um, in the smallest towns, big cities across the country, you just get the CBA catalog. You have your, you know, all, all your products all all lined up. This was the, um, you know, prosperity post war prosperity. You could easily get loans, start new businesses. It was a great time to start a bookstore. the The problem though was that um, to ha- to achieve this kind of uh, mass market, which was the point of the C. C, uh, CBA to you know come together, uh, you had to avoid denominational distinctives uh, because up until that point, uh, religious publishing was often distributed through denominational networks. So you know if if you attend a Methodist church, you can get your Methodist literature through your church. And um, Methodists didn't want to read Lutheran theology. Yeah, why <laughs> would Lutherans they? Lutherans weren't going to read Methodists. Exactly. I mean, like, <laughs> exactly. But the CBA, CBA took a, a different approach. But you needed to think in terms of mass market and not alienate the Lutherans and not alienate the Baptists, right? <laughs> you didn't want to divide the market. You wanted to combine it. And so the answer there was Christian living. If you market books on how to be a Christian wife, how to raise your kids, how to be a Christian man, these sorts of books were much more likely to reach the broad swath of uh, American evangelicals at the time. So it's like evangelical consumers become really like a mega denomination. Exactly. And uh, again, theology recedes because that uh, is going to divide your market. Why do you want to do that? Because let's let's not forget, right? We're talking money here. We are talking a lot of money. Um, these are not all nonprofit enterprises, I assume. These are not. <laughs> and even the nonprofits, we got to talk money, right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, right. Lots of money is changing hands here. There's a lot of uh, financial power here. Um, so so then we can understand some of these dynamics. So it, it, it changes the nature of Christian publishing. It changes really the formation of evangelicals in many ways, um, and it's it's market-driven. Then you have somebody like Dobson uh, come along, too. Uh, same thing. He does not want to diminish or dilute his influence and the appeal of his teachings, and so he avoids um, issues that might splinter his audience. And initially, at least, he is also not super political, and, and that's really important. Um, many people who are listening to him Many people who listened to him for a very long time would claim he's not political at all. He's just telling you how to raise your kids. 
And he is doing that. And yeah, stop getting so worked up. He's just giving parenting advice. Exactly. And so he was able to foster this like very trusting relationship because he'd give all, a lot of his advice away for free. So you could write to him after hearing uh, a radio show and say, I need help raising my rebellious teenage son, right? Who among us doesn't? And then some of, you know, his, his staff would, would send the pamphlets or would send a free book. And, and then out of gratefulness, the donations would come in. And even more important, you have the mailing lists and you have this sense of community and you have this loyalty that is forming gradually powerfully over time. And that becomes Dobson's uh, eventually um, just massive empire of influence. And then he, I mean, even his advice on on child rearing and family values was always political. Uh, He becomes much more explicitly political over time. And his loyal followers will absolutely follow him in that direction as well. They've been primed for it. Phyllis Schlafly's emergence as an evangelical star is a particularly striking illustration of theology's fading importance because Schlafly, of course, was Catholic. And evangelicals traditionally held some pretty strongly negative views about Catholics and Catholicism in the United States. So who was Schlafly and how did she move from being a militarist, far-right, anti-communist activist, not particularly concerned with gender, something that I a prehistory that I didn't really know about, to uniting the emerging religious right in opposition to the Equal Rights Amendment? And then what did evangelicals uniting behind a Catholic? What did that mean? What did it reveal about where the religious right would be heading in the decades to follow? You're right. Throughout uh, much of American history, evangelicals and Catholics were not good friends. <laughs> uh, certainly fundamentalists and Catholics were not. Catholics were seen as the enemy, right? As uh, they were not true Christians. I mean, I'll, I'll still hear that in evangelical circles. You know, you've got Christians and you have Catholics. I, I think uh, they they don't have the same hostility, certainly, anymore. But there still is this kind of residue of, uh, you know, we're the Christians Well, how can here. they be Christians if they're following order, taking orders from the Antichrist? I mean, you know. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> I think now, yeah, the residue might partly be those who attend Christian schools and you have Catholic schools. So you've got, you know, there's, there's other excuses for that language. But yes, yeah, certainly, uh, even if we look at the, the issue of abortion here, too, um, conservative evangelicals were not lockstep pro-life, not by any stretch in the 1960s, in part because that was seen as a Catholic issue and who wants to be like the Catholics? And uh, you're right, she was she was first um, this kind of right-wing figure interesting figure because as a woman, but certainly not as a, as a feminist or kind of very little uh, gender awareness, at least early on, she was deeply concerned about foreign policy, uh, deeply uh, anti-communist. And, you know, uh, she really rose to fame uh, with her book, A Choice Not an Echo, supporting Barry Goldwater. So that kind of places her in, on, on the political spectrum. And it wasn't until the early 1970s that she started to care about gender. She started to care about feminism. And it was a friend brought an ERA to her attention. And she thought, yeah, yeah, I have bigger fish to fry here. I'm focused on anti-communism, on foreign policy here. Don't waste my time. And then she took a closer look and realized just how gender was linked 
to foreign policy through, again, this strength of the American nation. You need strong men. You need uh, rugged men. And so the counterpoint to that is you need submissive, domesticated, very feminine women to play their proper role. And you need both together in order to have this essential social role, which will be a bulwark against communism, uh, both just the integrity of the nuclear family, and then also to raise boys to be strong men to fight the communists uh, on the field of battle as well. It fits so neatly together in Schlafly's work, and she provides this blueprint for evangelicals then to do the same. And so she's incredibly inspirational to evangelicals. She articulates for them, kind of puts the pieces together in a way that just makes perfect sense. And then very soon, they start offering their own versions of this. People like Beverly LaHaye, Concerned Woman for America, come along with their own versions. But it was really Schlafly who puts these pieces together so brilliantly. From the nuclear family to the nuclear arsenal. Exactly, (laughs) exactly. And so as a Catholic, she is clearly on their side. And we start to see this realignment of who is who is with us, who is against us, the traditional theological distinctions and cultural distinctions between Catholics and Protestants start to recede as we see these conservative values start to unite conservative white Catholics with conservative white uh, evangelicals. Later on, followed by more unity between conservative with conservative Jews and conservative Mormons. Yes, yes. Conservative Mormons, um, at this point already as well, we can see a kind of similar or a parallel story um, with um, particularly uh, around the issues of gender as well. And you have um, conservative Mormon women also advocating these same values, and then they come together. At around the same time, and this is returning to the theme of Christian books, the 60s and 70s, there were all of these popular titles published instructing evangelicals on the virtues and pleasures of traditional gender roles and patriarchal hierarchy and the centrality of sex to it all. There was there was Maribel Morgan's The Total Woman, which was the best-selling book of 1974 and like a counter of sorts to Betty Friedan's The Feminine Mystique, sort of in the same way that Dobson's book was a counter to Spock. And then Timothy LaHaye, most known to most listeners probably for his apocalyptic Left Behind Fiction series, in 1968 published How to Be Happy Though Married, which both promoted male headship and offered extremely detailed sex advice, something that was even, I think, if I remember correctly, even more emphasized in the book The Act of Marriage, which he co-authored with his wife, Beverly, who, as you mentioned earlier, founded Concerned Women for America. What, What did these authors teach about the relationship between God-given sexual difference, patriarchal authority, and marital sex. A lot of times people uh, who who haven't moved in these circles (laughs) think that evangelicals are anti-sex. Apparently not. (laughs) No, no, no. Not at all. In fact, uh, when I was floating this manuscript around various publishers, uh, there were actually Christian uh, publishers who were keenly interested in um, publishing Jesus and John Wayne. I'm not sure if they totally knew uh, what they were were asking for, but uh, I know at least one ran into trouble because the sample I chapped uh, sample chapter I sent uh, set off their in-house porn filter. 
answers. So <laughs> I'm like, not my words. It's it's your own. It's your people here. Uh, but yes, very explicit because sex was seen as absolutely essential to a, a properly ordered family, but it needed to be... Um, the problem with the sexual revolution was that sexual fulfillment was being found outside of the patriarchal heterosexual family order. And so that was the problem. Now, um, there are a lot of sexual temptations out there. And so evangelicals wanted to argue that the real sexual pleasure, the best sex, happens inside a committed heterosexual patriarchal relationship. And we're going to prove it to you. But the problem was many evangelicals weren't having great sex for a variety of reasons. I mean, uh, but one of the, the problems was this, this emphasis on you know, sexual morality and sexual purity. And historically, not just in, in distinctly Christian circles, but in terms of American history as well, the, the onus has been placed on women to preserve um, sexual purity. And um, so you know, back in the 19th century, you had the social purity movement, um, a number of reformers, including many Christian reformers, fighting against the sexual double standard, which was essentially boys will be boys, but women, it's all on you. So you have to be perfect. Evangelicals never really abandoned that ethic. Um, although, again, back in the day, evangelical reformers were at the forefront of challenging that uh, feminist evangelicals. Uh, there is such a thing, has been such a thing for a long time, a minority, but um, but influential. But then the problem was that this emphasis on female purity, female modesty, that it's up to women to preserve social morality because men made uh, God made men and women so different. God made men. He filled them with testosterone, and and sexual restraint was not really their thing. Uh, they were filled with lust, and they needed to have their needs met. But again, this had to happen in a heterosexual family. So that's where women came in. Women who were not married needed to do everything in their power to not seduce men, to not tempt men who were not their husbands. Because they just can't. Men just can't help themselves. That's how God made them and yes yes so dress modestly do not flirt do not be perceived as flirting all right it's it's on women protect the purity perfect purity now as soon as you get married as in that night you got to flip the switch <laughs> and start getting outfits and role playing and <laughs> yes like, yes it's yes really right? wild now <laughs> now it is on you to fulfill your husband's every sexual need. Because if he goes outside of that marriage relationship, right, that's the, the foundational you know, social order. Um, so, yes, the problem then was evangelical women weren't sexy enough. And so evangelical women needed to be shown how to be sexy, how to meet their husband's needs. And they needed charts and they needed graphs and they needed <laughs> they needed pictures and they needed explicit instructions. And yes, costumes would be helpful. This is Maribel Morgan coming in and she's, you know, you may have heard this um, 
this kind of myth of saran wrap, uh, meet your husband wrapped in nothing but saran wrap at the door. The whole idea here was that it was up to to women to seduce their husbands. And the way that you do that is you're not just through costumes and coming on to your husband and, and telling him about his amazing muscles and how attractive he was and all of these things, although it definitely included all those things. It was also properly submitting. It was being submissive. It was not usurping masculine power. It was not being a career woman. It was it was making um, uh, lovely dinner salads and uh, raising the kids and keeping a clean house and and coddling that husband so that you could prop up his ego so that he could lead not just his family, but so that he had the strength and the power to uh, lead in church and society. And so in these evangelical sex manuals, this link between home and nation is explicit, right? The bedroom and then the battlefield, all of this fits neatly together, like from one sentence to another. It just is a very clear transition that we're, we're talking about two sides of the same coin. You write that anti-gay rights activism, quote, is often depicted as an expression of long-standing opposition to same-sex relationships triggered by the gay rights movement of the 1960s and 1970s. But the virulence with which conservative Christians opposed gay rights was rooted in the cultural and political significance they placed on the reassertion of distinct gender roles during those decades. Same-sex relationships challenged the most basic assumptions of the evangelical worldview, Before reading your book, I'd been wondering about what appears to be a recent shift on the right from opposing gay rights to opposing trans rights. But after reading your book, am I right to think that this this isn't much of a shift at all because it's all just an articulation of the same gender politics? Yeah, and now, and I, as a historian, I want to be clear that there is precedent. You know, be, earlier it, throughout Christian history, in terms of you know sexual morality, in terms of opposition to same-sex relationships. Although, also as a historian, I will say, uh, you know, what those words mean, um, how these categories are defined, change dramatically over time, and so the theolo- the theological kind of grappling with these concepts also changes dramatically over time. So there is both continuity and change on that front. But fundamentally, gay rights, gay identity undermines this critical emphasis on gender difference. Because as somebody like James Dobson writes, men and women are different in every cell of their bodies. <laughs> no, I mean, technically true. But uh, you know what that means then is uh, you know, so much can be extrapolated. You think in terms of you know, binary opposites. So women are brave, uh, or men are brave, sorry. Women are weak. Uh, Men are the protectors. Women have to be protected. Men are strong. Uh, You you just go, what is masculine? Then feminine is simply you fill in the opposite. Reactionary structuralism. (laughs) (laughs) There you go. Thank you. So then you bring in something like, and again, God's plan is the literal marriage of opposites. And that's the foundation of society. Uh, now, if you bring in, uh, you know, same-sex relationships, that that messes messes everything up in terms of transgender identity today. Same thing, and so you'll have this continuity of somebody like James Dobson coming out, you know, with extreme words about, you know, transgender individuals and this threat to American Christianity, threat to the American nation, language that only makes sense if you understand what they perceive to be the foundation 
of the American nation, which is, you know, Christian America, which is this, you know, presumed God-ordained gender difference. And the same is true of abortion, which you referenced briefly a little while back. You write, quote, as late as 1971, the Southern Baptist Convention passed a resolution urging states to expand access to abortion. But with the liberalization of abortion laws, and as abortion proponents began to frame the issue in terms of women controlling their reproduction, evangelicals started to reconsider their position. That's just remarkable. Southern Baptists supporting more abortion rights in 1971. In the early 70s, well into the 70s, yes. And and here too, uh, you know, as a historian, you, you can find precedent for anti-abortion views within American Christianity and also you know, anti-birth control views. But you can also find the opposite. And in the 1960s, there's there's a remarkable issue of Christianity today, right? They kind of the, the founded by Billy Graham, this flagship um, magazine of American evangelicalism, 1968 special issue on abortion. And essentially the, they're asking abortion, right or wrong? And the answer, pretty much, it's complicated. It's really complicated, right? It's this, this really tricky ethical issue, moral issue. Um, and so some are going to come out on one side, some are going to come out on, on the other side. <laughs> that, within a decade, that moral nuance, that complexity is fading very quickly, virtually gone, certainly within a dozen years or so. And yes, what we see is it, it abortion shifts from being this very difficult ethical and medical issue into being uh, you know, a battle in the culture wars. And the more it becomes linked to feminism and the more that feminists identify it as an essential piece uh, for, for women's liberation— controlling their their um, their own reproduction, that is then going to trigger this um, very strong opposition and again build this this unity between conservative um, uh, Protestants, Catholics, and um, LDS folks as well. Um, and and it really is the link to to feminism and to women's liberation from their God-ordained roles of being submissive wife, right? Uh, where your, your reproduction is, your, your husband has a, a lot of control in that equation, and motherhood, right? As, as kind of key to think opposites here, gender difference, that is a woman's role. And abortion frees her from her husband's uh, authority in terms of reproduction, and it frees her from the role of motherhood if she so chooses. In terms of all these threats to gender norms, one thing that popped out from your book is that Dobson and a number of other figures, they they really seem to have been very annoyed by how dads were portrayed on television in sitcoms, which is sort of hilarious. <laughs> Yes, the whole Archie Bunker thing really rubbed them wrong. Um, they they really wanted men to be portrayed as heroes, and they were not fans of you know modern sitcoms at the time where men were kind of buffoons, where it was the woman who knew what was up, where 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 men were kind of clowns. They didn't see that as just distasteful or you know kitschy, or they saw that as a fundamental threat to America. And, and, and they, they really, you know, thought that secular media was dangerous 
And, and that's why they needed their own media. They needed their own movies. They needed their own television shows. They needed their own radio. They needed their own magazines. Um, you know, sitcoms were bad, but so was the nightly news. Um, because the nightly news, you know, the news networks were presenting at that time, right? In the 1970s, they were, they were presenting the Vietnam War as not a good war, as a problematic, this dilemma. And they were not presenting American soldiers as properly heroic. And this too was a threat to American, the, to the American nation. And so the, the solution here was, yes, you can try to change the networks and you can try to change Hollywood. Good luck with that. Better, let's just start our own. Let's start our own movie studios. Let's start our own news networks. Let's start our own right um, culture industry, essentially. And this was a great way to deliver content and to shape the ideology. But once again, it was also this massive money-making industry as well. And the two went hand in hand because when you told uh, evangelicals, be afraid of the secular media. Be afraid of the secular news. Do not trust any any source outside of, and we have God's truth. Why would you go outside of our sources of truth? That is really, really effective for building a brand and for driving consumers into, you know, your um, media spaces. And so again, ideology and um, and dollars. Let's turn to Jerry Falwell and the Moral Majority, which he founded in 1979. I think people often think of the moral majority as obsessively focused on so-called culture war issues narrowly construed around sexuality and reproduction. But in fact, you write that in his early years, Falwell held these I Love America rallies and that he opens his book, his 1980 book, Listen America, by graphically detailing atrocities committed by the Vietnamese communist and the Khmer Rouge backed by Red China. And these are, this is the opening of his book. And he insisted on describing Jesus as a tough guy, quote, a man with muscles. Christ was a he-man, not an effeminate guy with long hair and flowing robes. But most incredibly, he wrote, quote, the most notable example of government malfeasance in its family obligations is in the area of defense. Who, who was Falwell and how did he come to play such a huge role in making evangelicals a key force on the new right. Yeah, Falwell Sr. here we're talking yeah. about, oh, not Falwell Jr. We, might, we, might, get to, we might get to Jr. later. <laughs> plenty more to be said on that front. <laughs> That's the fun uh, one. <laughs> right. What's, what's funny is in, in these circles, right, Falwell Sr. is seen as the distinguished, the the noble one. Understandably so. I mean, anybody would would, would look noble, uh, I think, compared to Falwell Jr. these days. But um, uh, he was very radical and and really did help mobilize, uh, uh, played a key role in mobilizing the religious, right? He uh, founded Thomas Road. Baptist Church and Liberty University, and along with that, his own little media empire, right? Radio and um, um, it influenced uh, American evangelicalism in all of these ways. And what's interesting about Falwell, too, is the role that race plays in his story. You know, I, I set out to write a book about evangelical masculinity. I was focusing on gender, and very quickly I came to see that I was also writing a book about race, um, because what I was writing about was distinctly white evangelical masculinity. There are many places where that that comes to the fore, 
But when you look at, you know, who who we're talking about, who were the movers and shakers in terms of the rise of the religious right, you see that race was very much a factor. And Falwell uh, Sr. Is, is a great example of that. So initially, um, he was a segregationist and defended white supremacy. And uh, he has this famous in the 1960s sermon against um, ministers and marchers, where he says that Christians have no business engaging in politics, really. Uh, you know, that is not what they are called to do. This is a, you know, we're, we're all about soul saving, uh, evangelicalism, and stay out of politics. That's really shocking if you didn't know the context, which is, you know, he's writing against a civil rights activist. <laughs> That's the kind of Christian act. Activism, because in fact, many uh, civil rights activists were Christians and were motivated um, by their Christian faith. That's not the activism that uh, that he wanted. But uh, you know, within just a few years, uh, as he helps mobilize the forces of the religious right, he's not only uh, essentially an evangelist for political awakening for political mobilization among conservative evangelicals and fundamentalists. He's actually advocating for civil disobedience. His quietism was sort of selective. All that is holy. Exactly. And and that's that's important because a lot of times, you know, evangelicals are described as, well, they're very individualistic and so on issues of race in particular. And, and they're, you know— um, you always have to look at consistency here. So in, in what in what situation are they political? In what situation are they saying, you know, quietism? And what um, we need to look at beyond the, the stated principles and see, you know, what are we actually talking about? What issues? And then what principles do they ascribe to those issues? Um, so that's that's where uh, Falwell Sr. gets his start. But you're you're absolutely right. So he's he's talking about family values. He's talking about gender roles. Um, he's this advocate of this rugged um, masculinity. Sports are a really big thing at Liberty University. They still are. Football program in particular, he had been a football star. And, and so seeing that um, kind of vision of Christian masculinity and leadership, the military was a big thing for him. He was a strong proponent of the military, and uh, many members of his church served in the military. So you have this masculinity, this militarism intertwined, and um, this kind of blending of gender militarism he doesn't just perfect, but then he exports uh, across the country as he emerges as this leader. But you're, you're absolutely right. Foreign policy is always front and center for somebody like Falwell. Family values, foreign policy, they absolutely go hand in hand. And as I discussed with Greg Grandin recently, foreign policy, particularly Reagan's dirty wars in Central America, were key to mobilizing evangelical support for Reagan. And it made Lieutenant Oliver North, a convert to evangelicalism who infamously broke the law to arm the Nicaraguan Contras, it made him into a religious right celebrity. I did not know that. I knew he was a right wing celebrity, but I did not know he was an evangelical one. I, I grew up in a conservative Christian community, and I remember being really confused about Ollie North. So I was I was in grade school, maybe early high school at the time, and I remember, you know, hearing um, in my circles, he was this hero. 
And then I would, um, you know, read Newsweek, which we subscribe to, or U.S. News and World Report, or one of those, you know, secular magazines like that Tim LaHaye warned everybody <laughs> about, right? And I'd be like, wait a minute, you know, treason? How do you, uh, I don't understand. I was really confused at certain points. Like, okay, I'll have to just let this one go. So to see how American evangelicals rallied around Ollie North, who broke the law, who was put on trial, uh, who you know, armed the Contras, became a symbol of all that was good and true in America. And not just all that was good and true, but all that was good and true and embattled, right? Because he should have been held up as this hero for all Americans. And instead, he was put on trial. And, and you know, honestly, going back through these sources and reading what evangelicals were saying about him, it was so reminiscent of, you know, I, I was writing this uh, during the Trump presidency, and you could just see the parallels between their adulation for somebody like Ollie North and uh, for somebody decades later like uh, Donald Trump. Yeah, it turns out law and order is not such a straightforward concept. Not at all. Now, law and order means uh, what you make it, and it means uh, and for, for conservative evangelicals, right? Um, I mean, first of all, there there are racial, very clear racial undertones. Law and order politics, right, emerges in the 1960s as uh, you know, white law enforcement essentially um, asserting order, a coercive order over against um, people of color in particular, and then also some student activists. So obviously that's the historical context. Uh, evangelicals absolutely embrace that version of law and order. And it, it sounds um, uh, perfectly lovely and orderly and good. And then you can see it um, kind of morph and um, how it is and is not applied. And certainly in, in the Iran-Contra scandal, key here, again, you can just say hypocrisy. Um, you wouldn't be wrong or betrayal of values. But what is key is the notion of God-appointed authorities. Right, to get back to this kind of social hierarchy and to get back to these teachings of uh, you need to submit to not any authority, but to the God-appointed authorities. And so there's a lot of wiggle room there. Because if there's somebody in office that you don't agree with, um, somebody from the opposing party, somebody with the middle name of Hussein, perhaps, <laughs> right, you this doesn't apply. This doesn't apply. So it's it's who you perceive to be the God-appointed authorities, they are owed submission, but there's a lot of flexibility because um, if if that person who holds the power uh, is going against your understanding of God's law, then it is your obligation to subvert that authority, to disobey. It reminds me of American Catholic bishop's reappraisal of papal obedience now that Francis is in charge. <laughs> I mean, we all do it to a yeah. certain extent, but some more than others and some with, with broader repercussions, yes. I'm Naomi Klein. You're listening to The Dig as well you should be, and you can support them on patreon.com. This episode of The Dig, like every episode of The Dig, is produced in partnership with Jacobin Magazine. Jacobin is an incredible publication, and you've probably seen a lot of what they've published online. But they also have a really beautiful print magazine. It comes out quarterly and has well over 100 pages packed with illustrations, infographics, and some of the best graphic design in the country. Dig listeners can join 50,000 Jacobin subscribers developing socialist political thought and debate for just $15 a year. $15 gets you an entire year of Jacobin in print 
and access to the magazine's entire back catalog. If you've never subscribed to Jacobin before, you can access this deal by going to bit.ly slash digjacobin, all lowercase. That's bit.ly slash digjacobin, bit.ly digjacobin, all lowercase. In 1991, Dobson moved focus on the family to Colorado Springs, which became just a massive hub for evangelicals, including, among many other things, Ted Haggard's New Life megachurch. It also, though, was already home to the Air Force Academy, which then became a laboratory for evangelical proselytization of the military. And Dobson, in particular, you write, quote, would play the most critical role in cementing ties between evangelicals in the military. What were those ties? And how did they make the military more Christian, but also make both evangelicalism and the military more militaristic? Yeah, this goes way back. So, uh, I mean, if you go back to the 1940s, first of all, we need to set up some change over time here, right? Because back in the 1940s, the military was not seen as this bastion of moral values. It was not seen as a place where you wanted to send your young boys to become strong and um, moral young men. It was a bastion uh, the- of gonorrhea. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, And so, you know, evangelicals were uh, ambivalent, we could say, uh, towards the military. But as evangelicals who love to evangelize, they saw the military as their mission field. And as the Second World War wraps up, I mean, you know, already, um, you know, you can see that in Billy Graham in in the 1940s and kind of pro-war, pro-military posture. But by 19, the early 1950s, uh, in the Korean War, you see evangelicals actively organized to evangelize the U.S. military. And Billy Graham is front and center there, you know, taking these uh, these tours, vivals among the troops in Korea. That works for evangelicals who get to evangelize, it works for the military too, because they do have an interest in, you know, enhancing the moral behavior of their troops, as you suggested. All right. So it's kind of a win-win or perceived as, as such. And evangelicals really start to play this up and to celebrate, you know, conversions of American soldiers. And this persists right through the Korean War and then into the Vietnam War as well. So by that point in time, evangelicals really see American soldiers soldiers as our boys, as converts or potential converts or as good Christian young men who, you know, are representatives of Christian America. And and that's really how they're perceived. And so this uh, evangelical support for the military continues crucially through the Vietnam era. And again, Billy Graham is right at the center. Uh, and he is praising the troops and he is defending the troops. He's defending the troops in the national media, uh, right, after reports of atrocities start filtering back. And he insists that these are good boys and that these are, you know, good Christian young men and we need to support them. Here too, you 
you can see where that's advantageous to the military as well. And you see this kind of symbiotic relationship emerge that becomes especially important in the 1970s when many Americans are understandably offering some pretty brutal critiques of American power, of the war effort, and of the actions of our soldiers in Vietnam as well. And so um, at that point, again, uh, you have this uh, kind of evangelical identity forming in an oppositional way. Many Americans are questioning these values. Evangelicals are digging in their heels. And it is, it is an evangelical distinctive, a conservative evangelical distinctive to support the war, to support whichever administration is in charge, and to make themselves useful, make themselves indispensable to somebody like Nixon and Johnson, but also to the military itself. James Dobson picks this up, continues this on in the 1980s um, and, and after. After the Vietnam War, there's a lot of PR damage that needs to be addressed. Here too, evangelicals jump in and they help burnish the image of the military. Focus on the family radio, right? We'll bring in military generals and we'll, we'll interview them and we'll feature, you know, these good Christian men in their magazines, you know, military men to really explicitly fight back against this negative perception of the U.S. military. Again, the symbiotic relationship where somebody like Dobson, here's a little bit of you know, my interpretation here, but as I, as I watch this relationship kind of play out over the years, it looks like Dobson kind of enjoys the, you know, rubbing elbows with the military men. And the military really appreciates this, you know, um, PR help that they're getting. It enhances their mutual power. And, and this really continues on. And, and then we, we can jump ahead to, you know, Dobson relocating from Southern California to Colorado Springs, sets up his quarters literally across the street from the highway, from uh, the Air Force Academy. So he can look out and he loves to, uh, you know, to share that little tidbit that he's, he's looking over at the Air Force Academy. And then you see this kind of infiltration, if you will. Um, Ted Haggard's church and Dobson's focus on the family um, ministry. And by the way, Colorado Springs actually had a longer history of um, evangelicalism, going back to the 19th century evangelical reformers there, but longer history, but it really uh, emerges by the, the 1980s, 1990s as this this kind of new hub, this center of conservative American evangelicalism. And so you literally have busloads of people from Haggard's church driving over to the Air Force Academy to lead Bible studies there. So this is a very tight relationship. And you can start to hear how this language of warrior masculinity that by the early 2000s really starts to permeate American evangelicalism is embraced by the real warriors, the military warriors. And then as the 2000s go on, you see increasingly military men become elevated and soon they're the ones writing the books for Christian audiences as well. You know, how to be a warrior leader and taking this military model and using it as a model for what it is to be a Christian. So a very deep symbiotic relationship stretching over decades. The, the end of the Cold War posed a problem for militarized American evangelicalism. You write, quote, for decades, anti-communism had been a linchpin in the evangelical worldview, justifying militarism abroad and a militant pursuit of moral purity at home. The victory of the free world was something to celebrate, but it was also disorienting. 
Without a common enemy, it would be more difficult to sustain militant expressions of faith. I really like this part of the book because I'm fascinated by that moment of disorientation in the 90s and the rise of Pat Buchanan and black helicopter sightings and obsessions with the X-Files. There's just a totally strange thing that happens in the early 90s at the end of the Cold War. And evangelicals, you write, initially found their new enemy in a so-called new world order, which I didn't realize was such a thoroughly evangelical idea. What, what was this new evil, the new world order that evangelicals discovered? Yeah, I mean, first of all, to to give a little airtime to that disarray in the 1990s, right? That that um, I, I love the chapter on the 90s too. It's my favorite because it's not what you expect, right? It's all the old certainties were up, you know, called into question, up in the air, and so you do see evangelicals straying from these values, and you see evangelicals, you know, you have the Promise Keepers movement, which seems super reactionary in many ways. It was, it certainly is today. Uh, but also I grew up in DC with... when and, and when I when, oh you were there and, and I just saw all of a suddenly all these evangelicals and I was like what the <laughs> so exactly. I, I assumed that they were all as far right as possible but you're you're understandable <laughs> understandable in fact if we contextualize them no they were you know they're kind of middle of the road um, you had egalitarians I mean you definitely had patriarchy but it was a soft patriarchy you had in terms of evangelical politics you had people saying you know maybe the culture you know this cultural model uh uh-uh. uh let's let's focus on global uh, poverty. Let's uh, focus on uh, global persecution of Christians. Let's 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 engage in anti-trafficking activism. Let's let's put the old ways behind us. And you know, evangelical leaders and political activists were suggesting we 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 need a new game here. And but not all. And so you do have Buchanan, and you have the old guard still saying, "No, no, 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 no. We need, we need to to double down. We need, we need. Uh, there is a war. There is a war. It's not the Cold War. It's a war for the soul of America, right? Uh, but then, yes, the New World Order emerges as one of these uh, threats. You don't have the communist threat anymore. But uh, and there's a longer history here too in the 20th century um, in conservative fundamentalism and so on of this kind of you know different interpretations of the scriptures and particularly different um, prophetic passages of, or prophecy teachings of a fear of a kind of global order. And this is, it pops up in theology, but it also pops up in Christian fiction a lot, right? This is the enemy. It's a it's a, a, a global order, the UN, uh, European Union, some sort of force that um, presents itself as good, presents itself as for world harmony, but they are not of God. And if they are not of God, they can only be evil. This is Antichrist. So don't be fooled. And we have to stand against them. Um, so it kind of brings, you know, Christian nationalism. We're distinctive. We a uh, huge emphasis on American sovereignty and this notion again of exceptionalism all builds into this. So like whatever the, the kind of global force is of the moment, that is what must be opposed. And it's definitely, uh, you know, part of this kind of fringe element but once again, not just fringe, because you'll see within mainstream evangelicalism too, a lot of antagonism towards something like the United Nations, towards UN Human Rights Commission, things like that, um, that you would think, well, isn't that a good thing? Can't we all be for human rights? Can't we? No, not at all. This is seen as really of the devil and something that has to be fought at every turn. And it was really during the 90s, during the Clinton era of the 
New World Order, of gays in the military, of Monica Lewinsky, of, of the specter of Hillary Clinton. It was really Pat Robertson, Ralph Reed, and the Christian Coalition were, that were at the cutting edge of this right-wing conspiracism. Yeah. And, you know, I, Hillary Clinton fascinates me. I was actually um, working on a study of Hillary Clinton and her religious formation that I set aside to write this book um, because of 2016. Um, but I've long been fascinated by Hillary Clinton, who, of course, is a, um, a, a devoted Christian herself. Uh, she knows her theology through and through. She could probably put most evangelicals to shame in terms of her theological and biblical literacy. And yet she is, is seen as the enemy. And so if you just, just look at, you know, 2016 and say, well, of course they went, um, uh, for Trump because Hillary Clinton was the worst possible choice. Uh, as a historian, I have to say, why? Why? Why did they despise Hillary Clinton so much? And in so many circles, whether evangelical or um, you know, non-evangelical circles, that's taken as a given. It shouldn't be. We need to go back in time and say, why was Hillary Clinton anathema to evangelicals? And it also um, didn't happen instantly, right? She, over time, first she ran afoul with uh, a foul of conservatives because of her feminist ways and particularly um, uh, keeping uh, her last name Rodham for too long. But also she was working for uh, the rights of children, uh, which undermined conservative evangelicals' emphasis on patriarchal authority. It's the authority of the father, of the parents, right? But then really the father to make any and all decisions for their children. So don't talk about rights of the child. That is a fundamental threat to God-ordained social order. Same thing in the, as, as a first lady, you know, universal health care, we could talk about that, but also uh, her work with the UN and UN Commission for Women's Rights and that famous Beijing speech that, you know, what she was so celebrated for in many circles, absolutely not in evangelical circles. So there were so many reasons, like political policy issues that set them against Hillary Clinton, um, placed them at odds. So even though Hillary Clinton was, uh, you know, subscribed to Christianity to today, would read evangelical devotionals, could, again, talk theology with the best of them. Um, those theological affinities, if you will, meant nothing because of these partisan and policy differences. So I really want to bring that history into our understanding of, you know, this impossible choice that evangelicals had um, in 2016. Another strand that took off in the 90s and aughts was this vast purity culture, and it emphasized both abstinence and the joys to come of marital sex. How did that movement arise? What sort of activities and institutions did it entail? And how important was it all in shaping young evangelical subjectivity? Oh, so purity culture, again, there's a longer history of teachings of sexual morality within Christian circles, but that's that's not really what we're talking about here in terms of purity culture. Purity culture is just inextricably linked to patriarchy, and that's really important to set right up front. 
And so purity culture also uh, assumed these gender differences. And so a whole lot more emphasis was placed on female modesty, female purity, that a girl would be ruined if she you know, lost her virginity before she was married. She would be cheating her husband, her future husband, out of what was rightfully his and would probably ruin their sex life. Cheating her future husband out of uh, inexperienced sex. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> So, um, and meanwhile, for all the, for this whole thing to work out too, um, boys needed to not be having sex before marriage, but then they were really, there was a, a less, well, less shame there. More, the shame was more around uh, masturbation and porn in men's circles. You know, there was a little bit more forgiveness. Again, the boys will be boys um, in terms of actually having sex before marriage, but men or boys were promised, yeah, that they would just have mind blowing sex. If they waited, right, just as soon as they, um, as soon as they got married. But I mean, that's just scratching the surface in, in terms of what purity culture was. It was a culture, right? So there are these teachings and books, uh, like Josh Harris's I Kiss Dating Goodbye, which, which kind of helped launch. He was a homeschool kid and I wrote this book when he was 21 years old, massive bestseller. And he, um, based on the work of Elizabeth Elliott, um, prominent writer, um, in, Christian women's writings and uh, emphasis again on, on on sexual purity, on modesty, and I mean this really took things to an extreme. So um, you don't date, you 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 court, and you court with the father's permission. Uh, you might not even hold hands. Maybe you can hold hands. I think, but you don't kiss until the wedding day. And then there's, I mean, that's Josh Harris, but there's all kinds of speakers, and and again, this is this is a market, and this pr- pretty much dominated evangelical youth culture for for more than a generation. So if you were a kid in the 90s, uh, evangelicals, you know, most go to church and um, all evangelical churches are going to have youth groups. This is what you learned in youth group a lot. You had a lot of teachings about sex and you had speakers come in. And if you were at a Christian school, you had speakers coming and this whole speaking circuit and, and talk to you about purity and talk to you about not having sex and all the bad things that will happen if you have sex. And yes, then there there's this industry of like purity balls that start up and they're still going on Which today. Is like daddy daughter um, dating? Daddy daughter dating. Mm. Yes. And so the idea, again, <laughs> patriarchy here, a dad has to show his daughter what a proper romantic relationship looks like. And again, a a daughter's purity or virginity is her father's ultimate responsibility. And so then he will take her to these balls and, you know, she'll be all dressed up and, and, um, there are these little ceremonies. And so, you know, he will bestow upon her a ring or both parents will in some cases, a purity ring, which is she accepts it. And then as she accepts it, she promises to keep it on and to not have sex. And she has to keep it on as that reminder. And if she has sex, she has to take the ring off, right? So it's this daily visual reminder. Her dad gives it to her. And again, he controls her, is responsible for her purity until he hands her over on her wedding day, literally hands her over to her husband. And she is then under his authority. And then she can, of course, have sex and and please him as God intended. This is this massive culture. How did it affect evangelicals? Oh, I'm hearing from so many evangelicals who grew up 
in this period. I was, I'm a little too old for the, I mean, I certainly got the sexual morality teachings and so on. We had speakers. I went to a Christian school. We had, you know, speakers come to my grade school warning us about magazine ads where, you know, sex would be written in ice cubes and would tempt us and things like that. So, so, I mean, I, 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 I can't say I totally haven't been a part of this, but the, the, full-scale purity culture is a little bit for those who are a little younger than me. And um, for many of them, I mean, just the stories are really, really harsh. Um, First of all, you know, many evangelicals did not wait for marriage and um, carried that guilt and shame with them. Many still carry that. If their marriages didn't work out, that was why, or so they were led to believe. Many who did wait uh, discovered uh, to their deep disappointment that married sex wasn't all that great or that their relationships weren't all that great. And there was just a lot of disappointment, a lot of guilt, a lot of shame. And there's a lot of deconstruction happening right now across uh, really a couple of generations of evangelicals who were reared in this culture and realized it didn't work. And and they're, they're, they're carrying so much uh, shame with them. You write that the promise keepers declined after their 90s heyday because the appeal of their soft patriarchy was fading, and that what filled the void were outfits like Mars Hill Church, founded in 1996 in Seattle by Pastor Mark Driscoll, and it was tattooed, cursing, beer drinking, hyper-masculine, and really quite misogynistic. Driscoll called on women in the congregation to give their husbands oral sex, warned against men being, quote, pussified, described women as being created by God to be, quote, homes for men's penises. And by 2019, Mars Hill had more than 700 churches all over the world. Mars Hill was part of something called the New Calvinist Movement. What was the New Calvinist Movement? Why did it take off when it did? And then how did it, along with other organizations like the Southern Baptist-affiliated Council on Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, make the larger evangelical movement even more patriarchal and reactionary. Yeah, so I grew up in uh, Calvinist Christianity. I teach at Calvin University. <laughs> I still identify as a Calvinist, <laughs> so full disclosure here. Uh, never, uh, I, actually, so I came of age in the 1990s, and this was right when we, we started to see this rise of new Calvinism. It was all the rage, and at first I thought, yes, good for us, right? It's, it's <laughs> fun know? and tattooed. <laughs> right. Well, I, I didn't. Well, that's. Uh, I very quickly realized. Oh wait, I, you know this is this is not what I mean, and there's no place for me in that new Calvinism. So new Calvinism uh, was was part of this kind of swing away from the you know this the softer, gentler, kinder uh, evangelicalism of the 1990s. Uh, we see that in the Promise Keepers movement. You're right. By um, the mid-1990s, certainly by the late 1990s, the pendulum was swinging back. We see this real backlash against, like, oh, things have gotten a little too soft here. We need to toughen up. We need more rugged men. We need more masculine men in the American church. And you have these books appearing. This is the, the book I referenced, Wild at Heart. It came out in 2001. James Dobson's Bringing Up Boys, 2001. Doug Wilson, talk about a fringe character. Uh, he had his version, too, of you know where he, he promoted a theology of fist 
fighting. And all these books are on the shelves in 2001 when terrorists strike the United States. And that is really going to amplify this. Uh, again, the pendulum was already swinging. Uh, we have folks like Mark uh, Driscoll out in Seattle, but their more macho, militant masculinity, crass, deeply misogynistic, you know, just uh, extremely troubling, abusive cultures that they perpetuated really does go mainstream. And that's what's so fascinating in the 2000s, where, again, this question of what is fringe and what is mainstream? And somebody like Mark Driscoll at the time, when I first encountered him, I thought, this guy is absolute fringe. When you listen to some of his sermons, his teachings on sex, I mean, absolutely abusive, commanding, you know, women to serve their husbands sexually because God told them to, you know, perform sex acts, even if they weren't comfortable with it. You know, God, God tells you, you go home and you do it right now kind of thing, you know, just extremely misogynistic teachings, just shutting women down and uh, extreme expressions of patriarchal authority. Um, but all of this was out in the open. And Driscoll becomes this, this, uh, celebrity, um, this role model for evangelical pastors and for an entire generation of, of young evangelical men. And so he's platformed by, uh, you know, very eminently respectable evangelicals who at most are like, Oh yeah, he's a little rough around the edges, but boy, he gets, uh, gender right. He gets complementarianism right. Complementarianism, speaking of the Council on Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, right? This organization that forms very tightly connected to the Southern Baptist Convention. There's a lot of overlap there. Uh, really kind of shoring up the theological foundations for patriarchal Christianity. So complementarianism is this idea, again, of um, compliments, really opposites, that men and women are designed by God extremely differently, and so they have to come together. And um, it involves things like, you know, authority to teach in church, authority to preach. That's only a masculine prerogative, but it's much bigger than that as well. It's cultural. It's, you know, women are supposed to stay at home. Women are supposed to be uh, feminine. Women are supposed to be beautiful. Women are absolutely not supposed to fight in the military. Like there's this whole list, right? There's a journal, the Council on Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, and they they spew out these articles and these teachings go far and wide. So what you see happening is from different corners of evangelicalism, you've got this mega church guy, you know, hip pastor out in Seattle, Mark Driscoll. You have the Council of Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, this kind of think tank, theological think tank. You have the purity culture. You have, we could talk about the homeschool movement, which <laughs> continues and becomes more and more popular, supported by people like Dobson still this like bastion of very right-wing teaching on gender, on patriarchy, on foreign policy, on white supremacy, like all this stuff. So you have all of these different spaces coming together and really building the movement that is harshly patriarchal, right-wing, uh, and in many of its guises, although not all, um, you know, a white supremacist. I shouldn't say many. It, it definitely it is there um, as a strand. And, and then what you can see is alliances. So who is perceived, you know, on the right side of things and, and how are those lines drawn? And then who is outside of the fold? And what, we, what we're able to see then is by the 2000s, somebody like Doug Wilson, who was a blatant racist. I, I think I can say that. He would contest that, uh, to be fair. <laughs> you can read his writings on slavery and um, how good it was. <laughs> and um, 
still being platformed and defended by very mainstream evangelical men like John Piper. And you see somebody like Mark Driscoll saying extremely problematic things about sex, about women, abusive leadership style. And he is not just being platformed. He is being praised as like the most influential evangelical pastor because he is on the right side of complementarianism, because he is on the right side of patriarchy. He is on the right side of orthodoxy as they define it. So if you are a patriarch and if you are supporting patriarchy, you are cool. And you, we, we can tolerate racism. We can tolerate abuse. We can tolerate these things. But cross the line on gender, on sexuality, and you're dead to us. Like you are out. We are, your, your books will not be sold at Lifeway Christian Books. You're kicked out of your church. You're going to lose your pulpit. And, and, and that's how these boundaries are enforced. 9-11 and the war on terror are key here. You write, quote, once again, America needed strong, heroic men to defend the country at home and abroad. Evangelicalism had never completely abandoned its Cold War militarism, and those who had become unsettled by the soft patriarchy of the 1990s men's movement were primed for this moment. Phyllis Schlafly celebrated the attacks for their, quote, dashing of feminist hopes to make America a gender-neutral or androgynous society. And evangelicals also played this huge role in in developing this kind of culture of troop veneration and special ops operator culture that's very much still with us today with former airborne ranger Chuck Horton celebrating special ops types as a group quote set apart and held to higher standards than civilians how did evangelicals use 911 to both reassert gender norms and once again to steer evangelicalism ever more intensely toward Christian nationalism and militarism. Yeah, 9-11 was so critical. Again, the the pendulum was already swinging. They were already rejecting this this softer, gentler patriarchy of the 1990s, and the promise keepers suddenly seemed so embarrassing and so overly emotional. And so promise keepers, you know, got got on board and toughened up, and they, you know, rebranded. We're not as your dad's promise keepers, or something. Exactly. <laughs> it was like just a few years after they founded. Uh, we're not your dad's. It's like more like now. we're not yeah. your older brother's promise keepers. Exactly. Unleash the warrior. Uh, right. So it's really remarkable this this kind of sea change and and uh, and in nine eleven absolutely it solidified it and then really you know amplified it. So now we have this kind of rugged Christian manhood on steroids and then things. Things get really colorful in the early 2000s. I mean, this is when the heyday of Mark Driscoll, but also you have like the God Men movement, and you have I have this you know, account of men uh, at one of these rallies where they they literally have a song where they are singing about their balls and um, very pious stuff. <laughs> It was a challenge. Like, how much of this do I put out there? And how much of it are people just going to be like, this This can't even be real, right? You know, the fridge versus the mainstream. And I thought, no, no, this song needs to be in there. But, you know, this is where, where we start seeing MMA, uh, you know, ministries. And and it just, yes, this, this militant masculinity on steroids. But it, it makes perfect sense. And it fuels a very aggressive foreign policy as well. And this is where we have this strange story of fake ex-Muslim terrorists that fit into this. And what I what I came to see is that the many of the men who were most vocally promoting this militant conception of Christian manhood were also virulently Islamophobic. And we're promoting these horrific stories of uh, you know the Muslim threat 
so reminiscent of the communist threat uh, a couple of generations earlier. And the connections, by the way, between the Cold War and post 9-11 America were explicit. You, know, you read a couple of examples. There are so many examples of, yep, this is the new Cold War. Boy, things were confusing there for a decade or so, but we are back on track, right? We have our enemy. We're on the side of good. You know, God is on our side and let's go. And so, uh, you know, we have these fake ex-Muslim terrorists that are promoted by evangelical organizations and leaders, by, by you know, people like, uh, you know, organizations like Focus on the Family. It's like total scam or, artists. Total, total scam. No, I mean, it's one thing. And and I first learned about these guys because one of them came to my own college campus. And um, one of my colleagues, historian of Ottoman Empire, was like, wait, this guy makes no sense. He's a total fraud. And now that's one thing. It's another thing entirely to realize, as he did with a little investigating and talking with the president of Focus on the Family, that turns out they knew he was a fraud. They knew he was a total fraud and they kept promoting him. And these guys, by the way, are still on the speaking circuit today. And now they've teamed up with folks like Jerry Boykin, um, you know, who are promoting this very aggressive foreign policy, uh, you know, and torture and, you know, forget the Geneva Conventions and, and um, you know, it all fits hand in hand. And again, these are the guys to the military guys who are writing the new devotionals, who are saying that not just, you know, this is the guide for Christian manhood, but Christianity itself, we are in a war. And it just, we're still living in this era today, right? You know, this is 9-11 and we're still living in this kind of moment in terms of this militant conservative evangelicalism. Yeah, I, I mean, I think the what mattered most at the end of the day was the function that the war on terror and Islamophobia played. For evangelicals, as the National Association of Evangelicals, Richard Sizek, put it, quote, the Muslims have become the modern day equivalent of the evil empire, which is, you know, revealingly true. Yeah. So the enemy was clear. The enemy was clear. Um, so early on when I when I started looking at this book, I, I kind of had the sense that I was tuned into the 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 enemy and i was i was tuned into evangelical fear but i had um the, the idea that evangelical militancy was largely a response to evangelical fear right that you know evangelicals were really afraid of communism and they were really afraid of feminism and they were really afraid of secular humanism and you can fill in the blanks there's lots of uh, things you can fill in there and therefore that's how we can understand their militant reaction uh you know and that's how you have somebody like you know Donald Trump um in the end culmination when i went back to history i realized that in many cases we really needed to flip that script and the ex-Muslim terrorists make that point so clearly that uh, it wasn't, that fear was not a kind of natural response to circumstances. Fear was, in so many cases, actively manufactured by conservative evangelical leaders in order to sustain militancy. Right, you can see that in Falwell Seniors, Thomas Road Baptist Church stoked fear in the heart of, of his followers in order to consolidate his own power. That is absolutely Mark Driscoll's game plan in his church. He was, you know, don't, 
walk outside of these doors to that church down the road, you know, your your very soul will be, you know, in danger of hell. He would flank himself with security guards to give this, you know, this impression of threat, of physical threat to his body and to the body of the church. And therefore, again, war. We are in a war. And when you are in war, you owe your commander, him, absolute allegiance, absolute obedience, and absolute sacrifice. So also, you know, here's the offering plate. <laughs> uh, and, and so so this is how, and, and the fake ex-Muslim terrorists, right? They, it was manufactured fear. So the fear in the hearts of ordinary evangelicals was real, is real, but it wasn't naturally occurring, right? It's been actively stoked by leaders who stand to gain a whole lot money and power to keep that fear stoked. Let's talk about sexual abuse, harassment, and misbehavior. In the 1980s, it was just all over the place. Televangelist Jimmy Swaggart accused Assemblies of God pastor Marvin Gorman of adultery. Swaggart accused Televangelist superstar and Christian Disneyland mogul Jim Baker, husband of Tammy Faye Baker, of an affair with his secretary, which the secretary importantly described as rape. Then in 1988, Gorman caught Swaggart with a prostitute. The list of evangelical sex and abuse scandals and scandals around abuse of authority more general, generally, and, ev- and evangelicals' apologetic excusing responses to these scandals is so long that we can't cover them all here. But some that might come to mind for listeners, Roy Moore and Teenage Girls, Ted Haggard and a male escort, Josh Duggar's sexual abuse of his four four of his sisters, rampant sexual abuse recently becoming a scandal within the Southern Baptist Con- Convention, and then outside the church in the early 90s, Dobson and others defending Clarence Thomas, slandering Anita Hill. People were so shocked that evangelicals could so serenely look past Trump's sexual conduct. But what does this vast history, public history, of evangelicals dealing with evangelical sexual harassment, abuse, and infidelity and other kinds of misbehavior reveal about what we should expect from evangelicals? What is it about evangelical culture that actually, in fact, makes them more likely to excuse the very sorts of depraved or abusive male behaviors that on a surface level are total violations of so-called family values. Once again, you have to put the assertion of white patriarchal power at the center of family values and then bring in these teachings about sexuality that, you know, a God filled men with testosterone and uh, there's a sexual drive there and that is God intended. And so um, protecting purity really is on women. And so if there is sexual misconduct, there is always a woman to blame. Even if uh, we're talking about the rape of a young girl, you will hear questions of what did she do to seduce him, right? Five, six-year-old girl is horrifying to read this. Or also, why didn't his wife meet his sexual needs? Uh, and so we have that in the in the Ted Haggard story, where in that case, uh, he uh, was caught with a male prostitute, but there was still a woman to blame, his wife, because clearly if she had been attractive enough and had properly seduced him, he wouldn't have had to go outside of his marriage um, to fulfill his God-given sexual needs. So there are, you know, it, it seems absurd. It is absurd. It's It's incredibly disturbing, but these are patterns. Um, victim blaming so frequently. 
Um, so a pastor is caught abusing a girl, a woman. Can we really believe her? Did she scream? Did she cry out? Clearly, again, she must have seduced him. This is how these things work. In evangelical fiction, uh, it's it's not uncommon to find storylines of false accusations of rape. Uh, and, and so much just calling into question, are you sure? And then defending the perpetrator by, you know— um, we need to forgive. This is where forgiveness comes in. And also we need to protect the witness of the church. We need to protect this man's ministry. Look at all the good he has done. I mean, this is the stuff that you'll hear over and over again. And now I, I, I mentioned before that I had, I'd started looking into evangelical masculinity back in 2005, 2006. Then I ended up setting this project aside uh, for a decade. <laughs> I was doing other things, wrote another book, had three kids and so on. Planned to come back to it at a certain point, but I kept track of these guys that I had been studying. And I watched this happen, I, the whole last chapter of the book, essentially. It's it's devastating. But one after another of these guys who had been these proponents of militant Christian manhood became implicated in sexual abuse or abuse of power or both, uh, either directly um, as perpetrators or indirectly defending their friends who were and so one of the first things I did, uh, well, first in, in the fall of 2016, right, I decided to write this book in the weeks after the Access, in the days after the Access Hollywood tape release, because I heard all of this outcry. How could family values evangelicals still support this man? Clearly, they're going to break with him over this, right? Of course, they didn't. And, and that's when it clicked for me. I thought, we have seen this before. We have seen this so often before. One of the first things I did when I knew I was going to write this book is I checked with a lawyer. Uh, because at that point, this was pre-Me Too, pre-Church Too, which is the Christian version of the Me Too movement. All of these, these stories were in public, but on blogs. Survivors were telling their stories. Allies were amplifying their voices. Um, but it was only in the wake of the Me Too, Me Too movement where this the national media picked this up. And I knew right at the beginning that these harrowing stories of abuse had to be part of this um, part of this narrative. Utterly bizarre and slow moving downfall of Jerry Falwell Jr. It's not really about abuse so much as just brazen disregard of purported Christian sexual morality. And this was one of Trump's earliest and most vocal supporters. What do you make of how that played out over the last months and years? Yeah. I mean, you certainly can find abuse of power within Liberty University uh, and stories um, that that will testify to that. Um, so I think that's really where where we see some of these, these similarities play out. What will be tacitly condoned or actively approved, defended in the name of protecting the ministry, protecting God's appointed leader. Again, this this patriarchal authority, this um, utter devotion to the man in charge in this case, you know, Falwell Jr. And he wielded that power. He lorded it over other, you know, he, he really inhabited that at, at Liberty University, uh, following in the footsteps of his own father. And uh, so I think that, I mean, the, the stories are only beginning to come out in Liberty circles. And just bar- barely trying to hide it. Like not even really. And it, right, exactly. So, so many people at Liberty watched this play out. They saw what was happening. 
they, uh, but, but the way that, um, that, uh, he wielded his power meant that, you know, professors don't have tenure. So you, you say anything, you're, you're out. And he was just, uh, you know, again, in his father's shadow, just absolutely adored, almost worshiped as the figurehead, fi- figurehead of the, you know, largest Christian university at the time in the world. And look what God is doing through us. Look what God is doing through him. And you can justify a lot because, look, this is evangelism. Think of all the souls that are being saved, all the good that's being done in this world. And that covers up this absolutely rotten core at at Liberty and uh, within the Falwell family for a very long time. Um, from what I hear talking with folks inside Liberty, it was uh, his behavior was very much an open secret there um, for a very long time. Um, but uh, it, it, it he seemed impervious um, to any any real opposition um, until until that famous photograph. And there he was at CPAC, I think, sitting next to Donald Trump Jr. talking about how they give their boys guns to play with, not, you know, not girly stuff. Three weeks ago tomorrow, we had our second granddaughter. And like I said, a few weeks ago, yeah. And her name is Reagan. How presidential is that? Beautiful Reagan Lee. I lobbied for Trump, but it was a little too soon, maybe. So we'll, we'll see. Trump is not the most feminine name, but we can make it. Hey, you we know, go, I mean, but neither is Reagan, We're going to take actually. a page out of the liberal playbook. It doesn't matter. You know, it, it doesn't matter. We can identify how we want. Oh, by the way, she is a daughter. She's our granddaughter. She's a do- And we're raising her as a girl. She's beautiful. We're, we're not letting her have a choice. She's what there, God designed. There will designed. be outrage tomorrow that you decided for it's her. God, God makes the choice of what the babies are going to be, and God decided hey, she would be a girl. You don't have to raise them as a girl. She's got a little baby doll right, right under her, her arm every second. Yeah. I mean, my boys always had guns in their hands. So you, we didn't. That, that's not something. Hashtag me too. That's not something you teach them. Oh, no. Always. You got to teach your boys how to play with toy guns when they're really little and then very quickly give them a BB gun and then, you know, move them on up. And uh, that's that's the way to make a boy a man. You write, quote, evangelical militancy cannot be seen simply as a response to fearful times. For conservative white evangelicals, a militant faith required an ever-present sense of threat. We, we discussed this a bit earlier talking about 9-11. With Trump, has this sense of evangelical embattlement grievance and resentment has become maybe for the first time more than anything focused on destroying or upsetting or in the language of the internet owning their domestic liberal enemies yeah it seems to uh it seems to be that way uh and that's the thing. We don't have a clear external threat uh, to kind of focus on and unite against at the moment. Uh, you know, it can pop up quite quickly, as we saw after 9-11. But uh, yes, yeah, so so now oh, the enemy is us. Uh, the enemy is, you know, and, and long tradition here too, liberals, feminists, secular humanists. And so had always kind of stood in as one of the, the enemies, but now kind of the primary. I would say that, you know, what really fascinated me about Donald Trump with respect to evangelical politics is that he uh, broke the pattern that for um, decades, evangelicals, conservative evangelicals tended to uh, diminish in power when a Republican was in the White House. 
because it was really hard to stoke this kind of fear. I mean, that, that was great. You know, Clintons were awesome for conservative fundraising, uh, you know, Republican mobilization. Reagan, not so much. Um, and George W. Bush, especially, right? You kind of see this ebb and flow. But uh, because it's hard to make a case that, you know, the fate of the nation is hanging in the balance when one of your own, you know, George W. Bush, the cowboy, you know, Texas cowboy and, you know, self-professed evangelical is sitting there in the White House. Much easier with Barack Hussein Obama in the White House. That's where, you know, um, with the Obama election, a lot of observers were ready to declare the death of the religious right. I don't know if you remember, it wasn't that long ago. Of course, that did not come to pass. And it's because, you know, having Obama to oppose absolutely strengthened these organizations, brought in the donor money. You had race, you had the sea change in LGBTQ rights. You had, you know, it was kind of this, this perfect storm. Oh, and again, you know, uh, Hussein, the Islamophobia continued. And secret you know, Muslim who's not even a real citizen, not American, not Christian. He's a Muslim. And, you know, somebody like Franklin Graham very influential uh, evangelical leader, Billy Graham's son, huge presence over on Facebook, by the way, if you want to go check it out, very influential, uh, was the ringleader of this, you know, Obama is a Muslim, he's not one of us. Uh, So very influential role. Anyway, along comes Donald Trump. He is not evangelical, but he promises to protect evangelicals. And then, and then he's kind of baptized by somebody like uh, James Dobson. He's a baby Christian. Okay. Yes, he swears. <laughs> he says bad Christian. words. Uh, you know, he doesn't know how to talk the talk. Corinthians but, too. Oh, <laughs> two. Corinthians. Two Corinthians. <laughs> yes. Um, but you know, he, he will protect us. And that's exactly what, what Trump said he would do. And he said the right things and he would be their ultimate fighting champion in their words, right? He was going to protect them. So they give him their vote. He gets in the White House. Now, according to historical precedent, that should have been that. And then we should have seen a kind of, um, diminishment again of evangelical political, like kind of organizational power donations and so on. But Trump's brilliance was that he was both able to, uh, you know, maintain that power, sit there in the Oval Office and stoke this fear, this existential dread that they are out to get us. And the the they, right, were other Americans, not real Americans, or they were immigrants. They were um, you know, non-white people. They were, um, you know, anybody who wasn't a Trump voter and, uh, a, you know, an adoring Trump voter is against us. And so he was able to have it both ways to really enhance this uh, mobilization and strengthen the evangelical political base while still holding that power, um, which means I don't know what's going to happen next, honestly, because I feel like history is, is, is broken at this point. Yeah, well, the evangelical movement had long conditioned evangelicals to love Trump, but then their embrace of Trump has acted to just further accelerate, turbocharge the movement's most reactionary tendencies. What do you make of the fact that so many white evangelicals believe in QAnon? 
Oh, there are a lot of reasons for that. Uh, going back to this suspicion of mainstream media, you know, decades long, and there were various reasons for that. Don't trust secular media. Don't trust news sources. You know, we have we have our own source of truth. Um, so there's that. There's also kind of prophecy tradition within evangelicalism and and, and certain evangelical um, kind of Bible study practices of. You know, the mystery will be clear to you. You can read the biblical text and you can discern what it means for you and what message it has for your life. Um, and again, these, these kind of prophecy teaching don't, don't underestimate the significance of uh, televangelism and like this Christian media that is on 24 seven that you don't watch. I don't watch. I should have watched more of it for this book. I couldn't bring myself to, uh, but like you know, Pat Robertson talking about the new world order. Exactly. Exactly. It is out there and it is influential. And I think it positions evangelicals to go for things like QAnon. There's mystery. There's this insider knowledge. And again, uh, just the absolute erosion of trust of the mainstream media, of the government, of of your neighbor, who even your family member, who is countering what you're getting from your trusted sources. And in part, there was the communist evil empire supplanted by Muslims, and now there was a void that was filled by liberal elite cabal. Yeah, yeah. And what's what's interesting within evangelicalism is you can see this kind of loyalty to Trump, even your two ideas of QAnon, they are turning against their own leaders, right? The, 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 the elites in their own movement. Uh, so one of the things that we've seen in the last uh, five years is many evangelical pastors coming up against the limits of their own authority. They, you know, if, if a pastor decided to speak out against Trump, there is a, a not insignificant chance that he, usually it's a he, uh, would be fired, right? Would would be removed from his pulpit. Um, and uh, even look at an organization like, or an institution like Christianity Today, you know, the, the flagship magazine of American evangelicalism, really walking this fine line between, you know, many of their uh, evangelical leaders, anti-Trump saying this is, you know, a betrayal of evangelical values, whereas their readers are saying, uh-uh, I'm, you know, and if you're worried about subscribers, same thing is happening in evangelical institutions right now. Uh, you know, there are voices of dissent, you know, voices speaking out against Trump, voices against QAnon, voices for, you know, masking and, you know, we can talk COVID measures and all of this. But uh, there are so many pressures because the donors are powerful, constituents are powerful. And so institutions, as far as I'm seeing the evangelical landscape right now, are maintaining the status quo, or if anything, are becoming more reactionary because you've got folks, you know, the, the dissenters are trying to change the institutions, running up against, you know, they can't, or, uh, you know, they get so much thrown at them, they finally say enough is enough. And you've got Beth, Beth Moore lead, leaving the SBC. You've got Russell Moore leaving. Uh, so what happens to those institutions? They're doubling down and becoming even more reactionary. It, the, the right wing's central obsession right now is arguably the 1619 Project and critical race theory, this idea that the U.S., is kind of fundamentally bad in some ways. And this was one of the things that in significant part fueled this recent right-wing takeover attempt of the Southern Baptist Convention, a denomination that was already taken over by right-wing insurgents in 1979 and is already one of the most right-wing religious groups in this country. 
evangelicals are so evangelicals are so protective about what America was, but then also the most pessimistic and negative about what it is it is now, what it has become. What does the evangelical history that you tell, what does it teach us about what has brought us to this point where politics is so polarized in a way that I don't know has ever happened around U.S. history? Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's quite a time to be a U.S. historian. Yeah. <laughs> history is the battle battleground. And uh, you're right. Just watching this anti-CRT movement emerge in real time has been fascinating the last couple of years. And there's a longer history here, a much longer history that, you know, right now it's called CRT or anti-CRT, but uh, evangelicals and conservative evangelicals in particular have have long worked to control their own history, their historical narratives, and the narratives of, of America. And so, you know, this is Christian nationalism. This is this myth that America was founded as God's chosen nation, that it was an explicitly Christian nation, that our founding fathers were devout Christians, right? You know, historians, including legitimate evangelical historians, have picked this mythology apart, but they haven't made uh, much of an impact in terms of the popular histories. And history is very popular in evangelical circles. You've got somebody like David Barton, right, who's writing these pseudo-histories. But then you also have this whole um, homeschool network and Christian school network and the, the the textbooks that Christians are using to educate their children now for generations are teaching this mythical understanding of American history in which we uh, revere our founding fathers and we thank God for establishing America as a Christian nation and everything was wonderful and good, including through the 19th century and slavery really wasn't all that bad and, you know, slaves had it really good and they were actually really good friends with uh, their masters. And so I right, this is this is in these textbooks. And so things got really bad in the 1960s. Again, make sense of, of the historical narrative that we've talked about. But if you just think for a moment, first of all, that that their version of events only makes sense if you are a white person, <laughs> like pretty obvious. Uh, you're right when the civil rights movement pops up, that's when things go bad. But that is the the narrative that they are deeply invested in. That is their their identity is rooted in that, and their calling, right? Their task is to return America to its Christian origins, because only then will God give this nation God's blessing. And, and so the, the task is on them, right? They've always had the special mission to, to uh, make America more Christian and to strengthen America, to make America great again. But it is within these terms and returning to this mythical idea of Christian America, which we will never reach because it was never real to begin with, right? And so that's kind of this, this place that we're in. But it is an incredibly powerful way to rally the troops, to, uh, to mobilize conservatives and to make them feel like um, uh, they have lost something that is rightfully theirs. So it really fuels this sense of resentment, right? That this is our country, that we were once at the center of things. And, um, and what needs to happen is we need to be back in charge because then we can make America great again. Well, Kristen Kobus dume thank you very much. Thank you. Kristen Kobus Dume is a professor of history and gender studies at Calvin University 
and the author of Jesus and John Wayne, How White Evangelicals Corrupted a Faith and Fractured a Nation. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said after noting that the bourgeois sees his wife a mere instrument of production, while other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We're posting new episodes every week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis. Music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Our communications coordinators are Izzy Olive and Tammuz Frankel. Our senior advisor is Thea Rio Francos. Check out our vast archives at thedigradio.com. Follow us on Twitter at The Dig Radio. And please do find us wherever you get podcasts and subscribe. If it is on iTunes or wherever else, please also leave us a nice review. Those reviews help introduce us to new listeners. But what really and truly does that is you spreading the word about the show to your friends, family, whoever. Please do make propaganda for us. And please do find us at patreon.com and make a monthly contribution to keep this going. Even a few bucks is huge. Plus, now, or soon, you'll be getting a weekly newsletter. 